Church, please pray with me. Lord God, when Moses approached you, when he approached you in the burning bush and he got too close, you said, take off your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God, you are a God to be revered and respected. And so, Lord, I'm looking to you that we would come to you in the humility that is necessary to approach a completely holy God as sinful people. Lord, as I preach, help me preach with unction by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I preached it this morning, but let me preach it anew. Let me not grow in self-confidence, but lean on you over and over again for the sake of their souls. Lord, open up their hearts, their minds to not merely understand these things, but to accept them not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Do this for us, Lord, for it is for your glory. In your holy name I pray, amen. Can we open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 or page 987? When you arrive there, if you could say amen, an audible amen, I'd appreciate that. Thanks, guys. I do that just because I, I want to know everybody's there. I heard a couple folks. I'm still waiting. I hear the rustling. We'll make it. All right, guys. That's good. That's what I asked for. That's what I asked for. So page 987. Let's get into it. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, and chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible divisions are not divinely inspired. We made them for reference, and sometimes they hide things that we ought to see. So read with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, and chapter 3, verse 1. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I'll read verse 1 one more time. See, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. People, my main proposition today is a question that I've took the liberty to answer. It's what is a Christian, a child of God? What is a Christian? A Christian is a child of God. And so bearing that in mind, there's a connection to be made between last Sunday and this Sunday. Last Sunday, we came in our Sunday's best. It was Easter Resurrection Sunday. And as we came, we celebrated the fact that our Savior rose from the grave, literally literally rose from the grave as a physical body, not a ghost, not an apparition, not a spirit merely, but a, but a man in a glorified body. But what about this Sunday? See, the Bible, that, that historical narrative of his resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the beginning of our New Testament canon, but there's 23 other books that go after those first four. So what was Jesus' resurrection for? What did he do it for? He didn't merely do it. And when I say merely, I don't mean to discredit the work of Christ, but I just mean to say that there's more to it than just the idea that Jesus died so we can be reconciled to God. We have to take it a step further. 
Jesus didn't just die to make a way to God. He died to make a new creation of men on their way to God. We call them Christians. Matthew chapter 28 proves the point very clearly. He, when he resurrected, he didn't just come back and throw a party. There was real work to be done. And he says, go therefore and make disciples, make followers of Jesus. In the book of Acts, it's put very well that those followers, those disciples of Jesus get a name. They're called Christians, which means someone who belongs to Jesus. But by far my favorite and the one most relevant for today and often repeated in the New Testament is this other title, Child of God. Child of God. The idea that these disciples, that these, that these Christians are children of God, that they're this new creation. What do I mean by new creation? There have always been certain classifications of men. There have always been human beings. And then there was this strange human being that was both all human and yet God. We call him Jesus. And then there were always people who were righteous. But the righteous ones throughout history had different sorts of titles. Back in Abraham's time, they were people of faith. Or they the righteous ones, and then they were the Jews, the people of God. But then later on, they had this particular title, child of God. And so where do we find ourselves? The next slide helps us a bit. We find ourselves here. You see that meme? I've gotten this meme sent to my phone on many occasions. <laughs> many. The idea of this meme is to say, you know, Christianity is so, is so familiar, it's so common, everything we say and everything in our word, when I say our word, I mean the word of God, the scriptures, becomes something for the world to use. Your body is a temple. We don't just say that. It's from the scriptures. It was blasphemous to think that you, you were a temple. Paul introduced that. This came from us, but our world says it. You don't even need to believe in God to say something like that. That just really means to treat your body nicely, completely disregarding the fact that a temple means a deity lives within the temple. Our world does the same thing when it says, children of God, look at the meme. Sir, why do you have a child's ticket? Because I'm a child of God. Ha ha ha. Right? Right? But what's, what's the danger here? It's funny in a sense. But if Jesus were here, or not even Jesus, a disciple were here, and they saw this meme, they'd be livid. Don't you know we spent our lives and we died to produce children of God? Don't you know from the foundations of the world, all God wanted to do was to produce children of God? This is not a small matter. Blood was laid so there would be children of God. And we would sit back and we'd say, oh, it's just a joke. And it's, ah, Ephesians 5, 5. Let there be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting of saints. There are certain things off limits. They belong to us. They mean something to us. And if we give it to the world, the world corrupts it and we're lost. It infiltrates our churches and and the idea of what it means to be a child of God becomes lesser than what it ought to be. What I want to do for us today is I want to recapture as best we can what it means to be a child of God. What it meant to celebrate Easter Sunday last week, more than dresses and big hats and nice suits, that it was something that happened in our hearts, that we don't lose our way. So this is what we'll do. You look at that verse one more time. Listen to these two verses, 29 and 1 again. 2, 29, 3, 1 again. Read it again. If you know that he is righteous, God, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born, everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God? 
And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Consider the highlights what's been underlined. Firstly, that God is righteous. God is righteous. And the idea that John is trying to present us here, John the Apostle, is he's saying, listen, one of the chief attributes of God is that he's righteous. Not just omniscient and omnipresent. You can be omniscient, you can be omnipresent, but that doesn't mean you're good. But we hang our hat on the reality that God is good. Different sort of churches say, you know, they'll start just like this. God is good. Congregation say all the time, all the time, God is good. We, we, we celebrate that, that God is good, that there is no unrighteousness in him. Just like James says, he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We trust that our God is a good God. And so therefore the logic follows that if you are a child of God, if you're a child of the righteous God, you therefore will be righteous. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, if, if you do what is right, you're born of him. And then chapter three, verse one, he hangs on that theme. He stops. He doesn't just keep going. He hangs on it. And he says, see, he's talking to Christians. He says, see, look, don't you see? Don't you see how great of a love the father has lavished on you that he calls you children of God? And that is what we are. What John does here is something incredibly faithful. Look very closely. Throughout the times, whenever we want to talk about who the people of God are, they're always defined in respect to two different entities. In the Old Testament, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he had the two commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments, excuse me, the Ten Commandments could be divided into two categories. People in relation to God and people in relation to man. That your righteousness depends on how you act towards the God that you claim to be a child of and the people around you that God has made. And then in the New Testament, someone comes to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment? You know, a little test. And Jesus says the same thing, firstly to God. What is it? Love God with all your might, all your soul, all your strength, all your heart. But then he also says, love your neighbor as yourself. This same idea that we are defined by our relationship to God and man. And I submit to you, as my two major points for today is that John the Apostle does the same thing in this verse. In chapter 3, verse 1, part A, he says, See how great a love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God? That's the child of God in relation to their father. But then he also says the child of God has a relation to the world. And he puts it very plainly. He says, The reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. They did not know him. So let's take the first, the child of God in relation to their father. Now, what I want to draw out first is that if you're a child of God, your relationship to God is a, is a, is a privileged one as you've been adopted. You've been adopted. Now, we can't do this for every single point, but I think this is a good point to go through the scriptures with. So I want to go on a scripture journey with you. Let's go on a scripture journey together. We will be flipping our Bibles together as a team. All right? So what I'm going to do. Look at this point. Next slide, please. Let's start, let's start in Luke chapter 3. We'll go pretty quickly. I'm also going to call out uh, numbers of pages. For those of us who don't have our Bible books just strong just yet, but I know we're loading. Okay, page 834, 834, Luke chapter 3, 834. Listen to how it begins. There are four steps in this understanding of who we are. First, look at verse 37 and 38 of Luke chapter 3. It says, 
He's doing a genealogy of Jesus. It says, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Catch that real quick. The idea is that, the idea is that Adam was the son of God. And everyone after him wasn't a son of God. They were son of a man. We don't have to flip to this one. But if you were in Genesis chapter 5, you would see that abundantly. Genesis chapter 5 Verses 1 to 3, it says that Adam was created in the likeness of God. And God created man and he called them good. But then verse 3, it puts it in there, a little quip. It says, and Adam gave birth to a son of his own likeness named Seth. The idea is that Adam and Eve were born children of God. They had this wonderful status, but when they fell, when they distrusted God, they lost their status. No longer children of God. Creations of God, yes, but no longer children of God. Now, why is this important? I establish this as the first point because, guys, quite frankly, it's beautiful. Because we lost our status as children of God. But today, in 2018, many of us are in this room and our status is children of God. So what happened? What happened is this. Adam and Eve, they despised their duty as children. But God the Father, he did not forget the mercy of his fatherhood. He did not forget the grace and the love that accompany his fatherhood. He was faithful. And so here's what he did. That second subdivision, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, fallen people, but they were not children of God as individuals. They were only called children of God as a nation corporately, but never as individuals. Abraham, the friend of God, Moses, the man of God, David, the man after God's own heart. But the nation of Israel, not called children as individuals, but children as a corporate people. Now, I got to prove that point. So we'll flip to John chapter five. Look at John chapter five on page 864 in your pew Bible. 864 in your pew Bible, John chapter 5, look at verses 17 and 18. Listen to this dialogue between Jesus and some Pharisees. In his defense, Jesus said to them, verse 17, my father is always at his work to do this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18, for this reason, they, the Pharisees, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For the Jews, it was fine to say that God is everyone's father, that is good and that is well. But to, to assert that you have a special relationship with God? No. We are only tied to God through our descent from Abraham, and that's all we need. But Jesus is saying, no, I have a peculiar relationship to God. And what's the beauty of that? The beauty of that is that he comes with this peculiar relationship to God. And all of us who believe in him, we get that peculiar relationship too. Not that we're God, but we become sons of God. And so it says it in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says it just like this. Yet to all who did receive him, on page 860, excuse me, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of husband's will, but born of God. We return to the status that Adam and Eve lost as long as we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins? Now, you may consider that to not be an important thing, but I think that's wonderful. Why do I think that's wonderful? I think that's wonderful because when you're saying, when we're saying we're children of God, when we're saying we're Christians, it's not merely negative, guys. It's not merely, oh, Jesus saved me from my sin. He pardoned me from my sin. No. Justification is both negative and positive. 
He didn't just pardon me from my sin. He accepted me as his child. An illustration. You're before a judge. You've committed all sorts of indecent crimes. You've committed a crime against the judge himself and his family. You've hurt his own son. And not only does the judge pardon you, if he merely pardons you, you just go out back into the world and maybe commit more crime. But the judge does something else. He pardons you and then he adopts you. He pardons you. He pardons you. He says, I will not hold this guilt against you and, and I'm going to call you my child. Come home with me. And now you get the honor. You get the honor of being in a respectable family. You get the honor of being associated with a wonderful law-abiding citizen. Now, I know many of us come from broken homes in different sorts. Even the best of parent hurts their child in some way, shape, or form. And there are scars of childhood that never seem to pass. But only a child of God, excuse me, can say like David, though my father and my mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me up. The Lord will take me up. He will renew me. He will establish a relationship with me, though I never had. I never had a faithful father. I never had a faithful and dutiful mother. No, I never, I never seen such a sort, but God has called me to himself. God has taught me. And therefore, those wounds can heal. The miserable state of the non-believer, someone who's right here in this room outside of God, the issue with you right now is that you don't seem to get this one thing. God is not merely calling you to a life of, of, of righteousness where he's not going to condemn you for the things that you've done. He's going to also shower blessings on you. And not merely temporal blessings that will fade, but eternal life that goes on for forever. Why would you pass that up? What else do you have of better value? But then you get the second point. Not just merely adopted, but notice your posture is that of righteousness. Your posture. You're a child. God didn't call you to be his spouse. We are spouses. We are God's spouse corporately as a church. He did not call you merely to be his friend. Jesus calls us friend. Yes, very well and true. But we have, a, we have a better, a stronger almost relationship with God the Father in that he calls us his child. But that comes with something. Two things. First one, children are dependent. They are dependent on their parents. Dependent. A small baby cries out and, he, and that child expects their parent to come and provide. A small child will not fend for itself in ways. They expect their parent to fend for them, defend and protect and to receive all from them. When I was in school and I wanted to go on a school trip and I got the form and it cost $20, I didn't go around and say, how much lunch, how many times am I not going to eat lunch so I can make this happen? That's all, I only did that when I wanted to get something my parents didn't want me to have. But when I knew it was legitimate, I would just go to them and say, uh, uh, Miss McIntyre said uh, uh, $20. We got to go. And the money's coming. I'm depending on you. I'm looking to you for my bread and butter. Now, guys, shouldn't that be a hallmark of you? If you call yourself a child of God, if this great love has been lavished on you, shouldn't that be a hallmark of your life? Are you dependent upon God? He taught this lesson to Israel so severely in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says many things, but one thing sticks out that we also hear from Jesus. He says to them, he says, you know, he humbled you and fed you with manna, which your fathers or you yourself did not know. 
testing you that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He says, my people, they don't just look to their own hands to do things. They look to me. See, as Christians, we're supposed to walk away. As children of God, we're supposed to walk away from our self-righteousness. The money we got in the 401k and the nice job we got at the, at the hedge fund, we find no real security in that. We know that's meaningless. Instead, we find all our security in the fact that I'm depending on my father. If I lose my job, I turn 55, my performance drops, and they drop me like a bad habit, I'm good. Because my dad, God, the father of all, is watching me and he's for me. I'm dependent upon him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, saints, what does it say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Put me first, receive from me first. The child of God is a a unique individual in that they completely reject self-will, that whole self-determination attitude that if I just control all my life and get into Harvard and find a nice job in San Francisco at at some tech company, I'll be good. No. The child of God says, that might happen. My security isn't in that. That's fleeting and that's passing. That can't get me any true happiness anyway. I must receive anything of real worth and value from him. Dependent. But then the second thing, the child of God is not merely dependent. and doesn't just receive. The child of God is also responsible. He's responsible to the father. They are responsible to the father. And now in what way? In what way are they responsible to the father? In that the father calls us to act. He resurrected us that we would act, that we would actually do things for him. An example that I gave in the previous service, two people at our church, a father and a son, Paul and Mark, little Mark, big Paul. Paul comes in here. He turns to little Mark. He says, little Mark, I want you to take the stickers. I want you to put them on the backs of the end of rows. Little Mark is like, all right, dad. He goes and he's doing the job. He's real happy about it. And then when little Mark's like, ran out of stickers, dad's like, go speak to Teresa, get more stickers, come back. Little Mark's like, okay, dad. He comes back and he does the thing. I said, little Mark, I said, what you doing? He said, my dad asked me to do this job and I'm doing it. (laughs) Where does that come from? We all know what it feels like to be dignified by our parents, to be given a responsibility. Drive me to work. You're like, all right, you trust my driving? Can you do this for me? You're like, okay, okay, I'm a grown-up now. I'll do my thing. Yesterday, my mom said to me, you're leaving the house. Can you get me some, some, some peeled garlic in a jar? I said, mom, you got it. Then when I was stepping out, she was like, you need a little money? I was like, nah, I'm working, mom. I'm good. You know, you know, it dignifies us to feel like we belong to our father, and our father is putting us in charge of tasks. Saints. As people of the resurrection, as children of God, we are called to work for him, to work for him. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, if I can find it quickly, puts it the best. 2.14 says, Jesus, who gave himself for us to be redeemed, who redeemed us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. When Ken gets up here and he asks for van drivers, what is your disposition, children of God? Barring the fact that you can't drive or that you're an unsafe driver, you should be willing to check your schedule and say, okay, you know, 
You child of God, what, what, is your, what is your life like? How do you set your priorities? Do you set your priorities mainly revolving around your, your job at work? Or do you set your priorities around what your God is calling you to do? Perfect example of this is we live in a culture where you're working 80 hours a week and you feel like you're doing something. Yeah, because you're providing for your family. Y'all don't need all that money. Half of that's for your ego. No lie. No shade. You don't need all the money that you got, but you're out there doing your thing. And the question is, that's fine and that's good and there's no condemnation for that whatsoever. But does it keep you from doing God's work? Does it keep you? Does it keep you from pouring into your children and discipling them in the word of God? Does it keep you from loving on your wife or your husband with the word of God? If it does, it's no good. We are responsible to him if we're children of God. If you are not, I leave you be. But if you are, if we are, if the resurrection has made you, that's something to consider. Now, why is this important? It's important because, guys, look, this is so much better than the life of the non-believer. Non-believer, in many ways, I pity you. I have a God, a father who gives me duties. He gives me duties to perform that will be to my benefit and will keep on giving back to me time and time again for all eternity. You have a boss, an earthly boss who gives you tasks that he gives you money for, done. That money fades. You're left with nothing. The life of a saint is so much better. To be responsible to God, to be his child, to be dependent and responsible to him is so much better. It is so much of a sweeter life, even unto death. But then we come to the second half. The second half of this, okay, now I I got that, David. I'm, I'm, I'm privileged by my adoption and I'm dependent on God. I'm responsible to God. These are some ways that I can check if I'm truly in Christ. But then it's not just your relation to God. What's your relationship to the world? What is it like? Now, read that second part, that chapter 3, verse 1b. That second part reads, The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, what is this about? First off, we got to understand what that word know even means. What does that even mean? When he says no, it doesn't mean that people don't know your name and they don't know where you live. Non-believers, you know, they, 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 you know, you have some obscure name that they can't pronounce. That's not at all what it means. What it means is, is that the world doesn't understand you. That word no in Hebrew was the same word they used in Genesis chapter 4 when it said Adam had relations with his wife. Or in the NIV, Adam made love to his wife. It meant a deep intimacy and understanding. Adam always saw his wife naked. Eve always saw her husband naked. But when they had sexual relations, they knew each other on a deeper level. And in that sense, the world doesn't understand the child of God. The child of God is supposed to be an enigma, a puzzle, a mystery to the world. Again, not in a superficial way. So in what way? In what way? In what way does the world not know us, children of God? I'll tell you negatively first. This is, this, is, this is not a way. This is a negative. This is not a way. You're not a child of God, and it's not that the world doesn't know you, because you have some superficial, eccentric thing about you. Let me give you an example. Sometimes, you find professing Christians who they're weird to everybody else, and they think because of this one thing that makes them weird, 
That's their Christianity. We, we homeschool our children, and if anybody else doesn't homeschool their children, then they're really not Christian. We only eat at Chick-fil-A, Christian fast food. <laughs> One's more closer to the center. You find, you find things like this. You, you find people who say, you know, I say, oh my gosh, not oh my God. <laughs> Christian am I, right? You, you got things like this. This one might be a little bit closer to home. You know, people who feel like they're Christian because, and they're a child of God because they, they merely attend service and they go to a Reformed church. You see, that arrogance. Do I go to small group? Do I go to growth group? No. Do I pray? Do I read? No. Have I devoted myself to my word? No. But I attend service, my goodness. And Jeb at work doesn't. We're different. He always says to me, how'd you spend your Sunday? And I tell him I went to church. And he always says to me, man, man, that's crazy. And I, and I go, yeah. No. That is, not, that is nothing. To merely attend a place of worship does not solidify you as a child of God. That is not what it means. Or even another one. Sometimes people think they're Christian just because they're nice. They have a nice deportment. No one says anything bad about me. I'm a good guy. No one gets upset at me. I'm a nice guy. I got this jolly personality. I never get mad for anything. Meanwhile, Jesus says, beware when everyone speaks well of you. But you're so, you're, you're attaching your Christianity just to the mere fact that you're, you're a nice guy. You never rub feathers. The reason why you don't rub feathers is because you're not serious about the word. Jesus loved, he loved God so much. He would not allow anybody to besmirch God's name when they were selling oxen and sheep and doves in the temple in John chapter 2, he could not help but to cause a riot because his God mattered to him that much. Those things are not why the world doesn't know children of God. So why does the world? Why is the world so lost to Christians? It's because of this. Christians, children of God, our governing principle is a father and the son and a son who the world despises. We take after two people who the world just doesn't get. Our ideas, our convictions, our practices align with them. And because it aligns with them, the world is always left to scratch their heads. Think about it. This book here, this book here, The apostles died so we would have this. The prophets labored, though they didn't see it all the way we see it, that we would have this. Jesus came so that the words in this book would even matter and be relevant and be true. And so as Christians, we are supposed to devote ourselves to this word. This word that the world despises, thinks has been altered, irreparably, this word that people say, oh, it, it, it condones slavery and it belittles women, we're supposed to love it. And our ideas of marriage and of sex and sleep and food are all supposed to be formed around this word. So the question is this, does the world know you? Does the world's jokes and its music and its TED Talks entice you so much more than a sound sermon? Do the things of the world poke more at your heart and resonate more with you than anything in the scripture? Is performing the acts of worship, going to service, reading your Bible, going to growth group, is that, does that feel like a, a, an absolute chore all the time? 
If it does, my friends, there's a great chance. There's a great chance. Because the world knows you so well that you, you're not a child of God. That's our test. Our test essentially is this, where does this stand for us? What, what value do we put on this? It breaks my heart, especially to see older people who have so many views on so many things, but none of them biblically rooted. I tell you a horror story. I hopped on the train one time and a woman was sitting next to me and she was shocked that I was reading my Bible. She was in her 50s and she said, oh, you're, you're a young man of God. And she was bigging me up and we were talking and we we're sharing. And I said, what's your favorite verse? And she said, oh, Malachi 3.16. And I said, oh, man, I don't, I'm not familiar with that verse. Can you show it to me? And she says, oh, no, my Bible's at home. I said, oh, here's mine. Take, here you go. She said, oh, I've been a Christian for 25 years. You know, I, I know all sorts of verses. I said, okay, where's, where's, where's Malachi 3.16? She did me one of these. You ready? Now, we're all not laughing. Malachi's in the end of the Old Testament. She was in Genesis. She was in Revelation. And she was embarrassed. Now, at that point in time, we're inclined to say, hey, David, not everybody's like you. Hey, David, you know, not everybody's so serious about the word. It's not in the fourth. But, but the Bible says meditate upon the word day and night. The Bible says that this is the only rule for life. All scripture is inspired by good and good for teaching, rebuking, exhorting, training up in righteousness. What else do you have? What else, are, what else do you make your canons of judgment upon? My friends, what does it mean to be a child of God? This is what it means. To be a child of God is to be someone who imitates God in heart and life to the confusion of the world. God lavishes such a great amount of love on you that you devote yourself to his word, his decrees, and you live for him. And you pour yourself out towards him. To the Christian, I encourage you to continue walking in that way. For those who are self-deceived, don't pass this sermon away. Consider it. Test yourself. Test your dependency, your responsibility. Test your joy in the gospel. Test yourself. Examine yourself to the seeker. Why would you delay? Why would you delay to be free from a life of slavery to sin? Why would you delay receiving a blessing? Be children of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time. Dad, it's not that I'm above it. I want to be below it, so I say it. We have no excuse before you. To be a child of God is such a wondrous thing, Lord. Let our, let our attempts at honoring you as your children not, not steal your glory. Let our attempts at, at living in righteousness give you glory so that everybody marvels at our good deeds, at our dependency, at our responsibility to you, at our joy and security found only in the blood of Christ. Lord, do this. Do this in our hearts. Encourage us, convict us, and move us into proper relationship with you, for there is nothing better than to be called your child. Amen.